Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Before we go to God's Word, which, by the way, you need to go to Ephesians, because we're going to be there uh, in a few moments, I'd like to uh, just share some encouragement that in the midst of the darkness that Craig just hinted at the, the surface of, obviously, the ugliness of sin in the world. Uh, I want to shine the light on a few little gems of grace that uh, took place about a week ago at this church. Many of you here helped out with Night to Shine, and you've known if it's the first time, you were surprised at the amount of work that's involved in that, and it can be exhausting. And yes, the focus is on the main floor here where our guests are honored and celebrated, But God works also in many other quiet little ways that um, sometimes we don't see, but I think are really important. And let me just share two what I hope are encouragements for you, encouragements of grace. Down in the respite room downstairs, we had invited some students to come and provide music. There were three, uh, I think, high school girls that played the clarinet, and then there were two college uh, men that came, and uh, they were a jazz duo. They played guitar and bass. They played for their half hour, and then after that, we invited them to stay for uh, and have something to eat. And uh, I'm thinking, uh, young men that age, if I put myself in that spot, it would have been to eat and run to get to something else that I was interested in. But these two guys stayed for half hour, 45 minutes. They sat at a table with other uh, adults that were there uh, for the respite room. And they were engaged in conversation, and they hung around, which I found, uh, well, surprising. I don't know what their background was. I don't know if they're believers. I, I don't know anything, but I was at least warmed by their, their wanting to stay. Uh, the second little bit of encouragement, uh, this little gem of grace has to do with one of our church members here who had been a volunteer in the past but couldn't this year for Night to Shine. She has been building a friendship with a non-believer over the past, uh, I don't know, half year or year, chipping away at this person's resistance or um, skepticism about the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. And in the course of talking about or beginning to introduce what Night to Shine was all about, this uh, non-believer was interested and intrigued about what was going on. She's got some affinity for people with special needs. And as she heard more and more about what this was all about, she herself came and volunteered that night, running into a couple of special needs people that she already knew. Um, She was blown away by the reception she got when she was getting her name tagged. Uh, later, um, in the course of a conversation after Night to Shine, she uh, realized that there was a respite room. She was blown away again by the fact that we were also concerned about caregivers and their needs. In fact, she is so ex- was so excited about her experience, she's inviting coworkers to come and volunteer next year. So God's grace is at work in some remarkable and unusual ways, even behind the scenes. And we need to keep that in mind because it's easy to be weighted down and consumed by the ugliness that's in the world. So get ready for next year. God's at work and wants to do some more amazing things. So we're heading to Ephesians chapter 3. It's going to take us a little while to get there. So hang in there with me. As I read this chapter again, 
I was reminded of how important, I mean, to, Ephesians for me is the most favorite, my most favorite book in the Bible. Uh, it's what I cut my teeth on when I first became a believer. It informed me uh, as to how I was to be as a husband and a father and an employee. Uh, it, it transformed my life, and if there was only one book of the Bible I could take, it would be the book of Ephesians. But sometimes, And I've studied it every small group we've ever been in. We've studied this book, and sometimes familiarity um, can kind of just wane your enthusiasm or your insight into it. As I began reading the chapter, chapter 3 again, where we're going to be heading today, um, it, it brought to mind an episode young in my life. I was a young boy in the backyard of our house. There was a shed, probably 8 by 8 by 8 foot tall, dirt floor, been there for, for decades. And surprisingly, having the largest sandbox in the, uh, the neighborhood didn't deter me from wanting to dig in the dirt floor in the shed. So a friend of mine and I were digging, and we found some coal. And then we found some bones. And our thought was, is we're going to be rich. Look at all this coal we will have to sell. And we'll be famous because we found a dinosaur. So I took the bucket of coal and a handful of bones into my mom to let her know the great news for our family uh, when I was then uh, given a good dose of reality. Coal has value, but it usually only comes in quantities of a ton. And I was old enough to know that that's a lot of buckets. And that those uh, dinosaur bones, well, that home we lived in had originally been my great-grandparents' house, and at one time there were probably chickens kept in the shed. No dinosaur, just chicken bones. And it made me think, well, even throughout my life until I met Jesus, I kept on digging for fame and fortune. Not in any extreme way, but always looking for recognition. I think we all like that pat on the back. We like to be known for something. And we'd all like a little bit, of, little bit more paycheck at the end of every month. We dig and we get lost in this pursuit of fame and fortune. But then I became a believer, and again, transforming my life. But even after you know, a short time after becoming a believer, your desire, your enthusiasm, your excitement for what has just taken place in your life begins to wane a little bit. And I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote, where he, he reminds us that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are too easily pleased. And I think we all suffer from that at some point in our faith life. Things become mundane. We get to, we're too, too easily pleased. We're, we're comfortable with the status quo when in fact we should go back to one of the parables, or actually three of the parables that Jesus taught it was the kingdom of heaven is like three times. Very quickly he, he shoots these out. And the one is, is from Matthew thirteen forty four, where he teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and he buys that field. And you notice there's a little bit of theme here of, of digging in the dirt and in the mud. And all too often I think we come to Christ we have this great treasure, and either we, we leave it in the field buried, or we take it out and it sits on the mantelpiece or center in, in our lives for a little while, and then it goes to the back shelf, it gathers dust, or it gets put in storage somewhere. And Yeah, it's there, but 
it's not a big deal anymore. That's not the case for the Apostle Paul. You see, he, he went to that same field. He's got that same treasure. But he spent some time there looking through it and examining it closely, understanding what a marvelous gift of grace this kingdom of God is, how gifted all believers are with this great treasure. And really what I see when I read through Ephesians is this treasure uncovered for us, explained to us, this great, marvelous gift of grace. And this is the way Paul explains it in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. He said, God raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that's now, that's today and until Christ comes again, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we can't know the full extent of God's grace. It's beyond our capacity to take it all in. But we could probably know and experience a whole lot more than we do. We, we can stop making mud pies and go and experience that, that joy unimagined that is ours. And so Paul unpacks. He's, he's been there with that treasure. He unpacks what this marvelous grace is. And he's going to measure for us at least what he can in these, in these chapters of Ephesians. And what I'd like to do just to get us going is just to skip a stone across this lake of grace that Paul gives us in the book of Ephesians just to highlight the, the, the grace that's there. I didn't even dig deep. I didn't spend a lot of time. I just surfacely read this and marked off a few things. So come with me on a quick journey. Beginning at the very first chapter, he opens up and says, you've been graced with every spiritual blessing, chapter 1, verse 3. Now, that's a huge umbrella of grace that covers, I mean, when you're talking about spiritual blessing, what isn't part of that might be a better question to ask. And if that wasn't enough, verse 5, we've been adopted into God's family. Uh, we, we've taken on his name. We are identified in Christ. And then in verse 7, we've been redeemed from the, the consequences of sin. Then in 7 and 8, if that wasn't enough, we, we have been lavished upon with the riches of grace. I don't know, how many times have you been felt lavished? I mean, it, over the many years I've been married, there's been numerous times where my wife has lavished love on me. But when I think about the rest of life, I wonder, how much have I been missing? Because this grace is being poured out. It's there every day. And in verses 11 and 14, we're told we have this great inheritance of eternal life. And not only do we have the inheritance, it's got a guaranteed seal, verse 13, of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, Paul is so already kind of overcome by the, the magnitude of this grace that he stops and he breaks into prayer. And he's actually praying for more grace to be revealed to us. And he says, and he prays and he asks that we would have wisdom and illumination in knowing Jesus. That we would have the grace of an enlightened heart, verse 18. We get the grace of being part of his body, which is the church, the body of Christ. And we get to know who's boss, verses 22 and 23. I don't know if I've ever had a work situation where it was unclear who was in charge, or too many people thought they were in charge, 
and you, you didn't know whether you were coming and going by the, the, the chaos or the anarchy, by lack of leadership. It's never a fun place to live, or excuse me, a fun place to work. But when it comes to grace and our faith, we know who's the boss. It's not you, it's not me, it's Jesus. So that's a marvelous grace. And then comes probably the centerpiece of this treasure of God's kingdom, the, the, the real, the, the, the big gem of grace. <clears throat> it's at chapter 2, verse 4, and it's that word, but. We were once dead, every single one of us dead in our sins, but because of Christ Jesus, we are now alive. What a, what a marvelous gem of grace. Verse 6 kind of fleshes that out a little bit more. We were saved, we were raised, we were seated with Jesus in heaven. And then we're given the gift of faith to live by. Not by works, not by micromanaging life, but by faith. Takes some getting used to, but it is a freeing way to live. To live by faith. I don't have to know it all. I don't have to be in control of everything because God is. He's the boss. And so I can live by the grace of faith. And then we've been saved with a purpose. Everyone needs to understand their purpose in life. Again, there's something invigorating. There's something uh, encouraging about knowing what your purpose is. And that's another grace we're given in chapter 2, verse 10. Saved with a purpose. Verse 12 says we have the grace of no longer being aliens in this world, no longer aliens without hope or without God. In verse 14, we can have peace, that is shalom. We can know things the way they're supposed to be. We can know life together without divisions. And then 15 and 16, we get to be part of a new humanity, something that was unheard of and unknown of until that time. And we get to be there because of the grace of reconciliation that those same verses provide us. And then wrapping it up in chapter 2, we have access to God via the Holy Spirit. Direct access and communication with God. And then finally in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2, we get to be members of God's house, his church. We get to be citizens in his kingdom with all the rights and privileges that that includes. And then Paul says that all of this, all of this and more is the reason, chapter 3, verse 1, is the reason that I want to stop and I want to pray again, just like I did at the end of chapter 1. But Paul digresses. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. My wife is telling me something, and she'll say something or refer to something, and it triggers a, a memory that, oh, that's right, I was supposed to tell her about this. And I say, stop, hold it, keep that thought. I have to share this with you. That's what's happened here. The Holy Spirit knows Paul needs to get to this prayer, and he's going to get there. But before that, the Holy Spirit's saying, Paul, what I want you to do, I want you to go and now share your personal testimony of the impact of this grace on your life. I want you to, to, to tell your readers, both now and, well, until Christ comes again, what verses from chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, how that's impacted your life. 
And here's now where I wish we could go back and play uh, Craig's sermon from last week because he fleshed out that impact that it had. Uh, but it had a great impact on, on Paul. This treasure, this, this grace, um, just drove him in places he never would have imagined. And so here we are again at chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And we read that, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, now surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was, that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. That's a reference back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So it's not really a mystery anymore. In reading this, then, you were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And then in verse 6, he encapsulates this mystery. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, as heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And really, Paul just unloads another dump truck of grace. But he's tacking this or, or tying this grace into mystery, which really is not big a mystery anymore. It's just simply making something that was unknown, and God has now revealed it. It's not some big whodunit that we have to scratch, scratch around to try and figure out. And it's, the, the mystery is grace here, because it refers to all things coming together in Christ. And that's important to remember. This in Christ is central to much of Paul's teaching. That is, that it has priority in our lives. So all these things have come, get, come together, and he's using the, special, the, the, the special circumstances that he has been in, and that is the coming together of Jews and Gentiles. And so he brings together this testimony because... <clears throat> Again, we remember that um, this has a great impact on Paul, something that if, if you had grown up with him and knew who he was and the training he had and the fact that he was the, the, a Jew's Jew, there's no way in the world that if you had heard news about Ephesus and that he was, he was including uh, the Gentiles in with the Jews, you wouldn't have believed it for a minute. But what he was doing among the Jews and the Gentiles and teaching there had great impact on him. God's amazing grace was evident. Yes, it was there on the road to Damascus when he was converted, but what he's talking about here is his post-conversion impact of grace on his life. 
that he reveals in verses 1 through 7 of our text today. And what we see there is that there are consequences to grace. And by consequences, I'm talking about, yeah, sure, we get saved by grace, but there are sometimes unexpected consequences. And usually when they're unexpected, well, sometimes we wish maybe we didn't have um, that, that consequence. And then there's the responsibility of grace that Paul shares with us. Now, when we talk about the consequence of grace and not always being what we expected, that's because sometimes it is hardship is involved. Not sometimes. It's a guarantee that there will be hardship uh, as a consequence of grace in our lives. And then there will be unity. It's a never dreamed of unity. It's when in your life there is never again any of those people. There is never an us and them. There's only an opportunity for another brother and sister in Christ. So first we look at the consequence of uh, grace being hardship. Again, because of this amazing grace, this amazing mystery of revealed grace in Paul's life, he is literally now a prisoner. He is in prison. And the only reason that he's in prison is because he decided to stop preaching to just the Jews. If he'd stayed there, everything would have been fine. Life would have gone on. No big deal. But answering the call of God, he's taking this marvelous, amazing grace and he's sharing it with the Gentiles and saying, there's no difference. You both have the same access to God that was, had been reserved only for the Jews in times past. And all of this is because of Christ. And again, remember, Paul is the Jew's Jew. And he didn't let that, his identity, that former identity, or the circumstances, his current circumstances of being in prison, define him. He's saying only the the gospel defines me. Only Christ defines me. Only grace defines me. And here's the thing I think we need to remember, is that where there are the immeasurable riches of God's grace, there are also going to be consequences. For Paul, again, literally, prison, But note here that Paul is rejoicing in his imprisonment because it helps him further identify with the death and resurrection of Christ on behalf of other people. The application here for us is is pretty basic because we need to assume that we we are heirs with Christ in his sufferings and in his resurrection and in his glory that we are going to have struggles and hardships this side of heaven. It's a guarantee if you're going to exercise your faith. However, the privilege of working for God and having access to God far outweigh any struggle, challenge, or difficulty we may face. So, you've been warned. Second consequence of God's grace is unity. I would say the messy unity of his people, the church. This unity, again, is is grounded on being in Christ. The whole Jewish-Gentile issue, it's probably a non-issue today. Rather, things like racism that was brought up last year, the issue of race and ethnicity is a bigger challenge. Added to that would be the other two uh, elements that Francis Schaeffer had proclaimed decades back of being what I would call the unholy trinity. That is racism, individualism, and consumerism that fight against the grace 
of Lord Jesus Christ in our life that draw us back to making mud pies and digging in the dirt in the shed. And so we need to be on guard against individualism and consumerism and racism because that's what gets in the way of our unity and becoming one that, that, that God has called us to. So that's the consequences of grace. But the, Paul also says there's a responsibility of grace. And that comes in two areas. That has to do with the gift of ministry and then living boldly with God or for God. Now you note in verse 2 of our text today that Paul has been given the responsibility to be an administrator or a manager of God's amazing grace. So much so that, that he realizes that he's a servant of this grace. Verse 7. Now, usually when we think of grace, it, the first and foremost, it's the grace of salvation. And yes, it's that, but Paul kind of kicks the door open and says, it's that plus a whole lot more, as I just kind of unloaded in my, in my first two chapters here. But in chapter 2, verse 10, is where he really kicks the door open. He expands the scope of grace to include the gift of ministry. And there we read that, for we are what he, God, has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life. You see, grace is never just a privilege. It is also a responsibility, or brings with it a responsibility. We are responsible for being good stewards or good managers of God's grace. And Paul sees himself, again, as a steward or manager, in the grace of his ministry. Now, you might think, well, okay, I know the pedigree of the Apostle Paul. I know what he studied and where he studied and the relationship he had with God. Of course he's a manager or steward for God's grace. He was on, he was on the, the, the corporate fast track, if you will, of grace. But Paul's not going to let us off the hook with that, uh, that idea. Because if you look ahead into chapter 4, verse 7, you're going to read there that he says, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of God's gift. And this is the truth that's further reinforced by Peter in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 10 where we're told they're like good stewards of the manifold grace, that means all of God's grace, is like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gifts each of you has received. I would argue that the ultimate gift of grace is not what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. And so you might ask, well, okay, what have I been saved for? You have been saved in order to glorify God with, ever, with, with every waking breath. In fact, even the breaths you take when you sleep. You've been saved to glorify God. And you do that by living a life of grace-filled worship. Not just gathering on a Sunday morning in corporate worship, but a, a life that is every day, 24-7, 365, lived in worship. You see, it is one thing to receive grace, the grace of salvation, but we see, receive that grace to also be taken into its service. Grace saves us. Grace connects us with one another. Grace enlists us in the work of the kingdom. Grace empowers us when we feel worn out and confused. You see, I believe this grace stuff in its entirety can be, well, a little bit messy. It is simple stuff, but not always easy to live out. 
Uh, I use the example of, of living a life of grace as kind of a compare and contrast. I don't know, anyone ever gone tubing? It is just a wonderful way to spend a day in the country, meandering down the river in the bright sunshine and the cool breeze and the water not too hot or not, not too cold. Maybe you've got a cooler in the tube behind you and you're waiting for that perfect island to stop and have a nice picnic lunch and then meander on down the stream until you get into your destination. I don't think that's what grace calls us to. Instead, I think it calls us more to an experience like whitewater rafting, that you have to get into a raft with other people, that corporately, yes, you're going to have some nice gentle meandering down the river, but then you're going to hit the rapids, and it's going to get a little scary, and it's going to get a little exhilarating, and you're going to get wet, and you're going to be maybe sniping at each other because someone isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And all these things are going to be going on, and at the end of it, you're going to get to your destination, but somewhere along the way, or maybe even at the end, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be worn out, but yet exhilarated. I think that's the life of grace-filled worship that God has intended for us to live. Grace, living a life of grace can be exhausting. And that's why I believe then Paul finally gets back to his prayer. So here we are back again at our text, verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul says, for this reason, and we're right back to the beginning of the, the chapter, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love to, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, this beautiful prayer is worth a sermon all, all on its own. But I think sometimes when we do that, we lose sight of the forest for the trees. This is not just some historical um, prayer of Paul that's meant to be dissected and uh, come up with a bunch of study questions for your, your small group. Rather, Paul is giving us, I think, another gift of grace, another, another little treasure from the kingdom of God. And I would argue that rather and more than, than studying this prayer, it's meant to be used by you and I. Used by you and I to empower our faith, to recharge the grace that's within us. That it's a prayer that should be used regularly as a gift of grace to do just what Paul is asking it there. He's asking for power that we would be strengthened in our inner being. I mean, that covers everything from our faith to hope to trying to live out the Beatitudes, everything that, that goes on inside your heart and soul. It needs to be strengthened from time to time. Anyone ever here been weary of life in general? We need to be strengthened in our inner being. We need the power to live firmly and securely in, uh, in God's love. We need power to stretch ourselves to be able to accommodate the fullness of God. I, I can't even imagine what that would look like if I gave him a little bit more room in my life. 
We need power to expand our imagination when it comes to prayer because, frankly, sometimes our prayers get pretty stilted, dry, and dull. We need the power, too, to live in ways that we've never dreamed of, to live in grace in ways we've never uh, dreamed of. And we need power in order to be faithful stewards of God's grace each and every day. But then it maybe raises the question, what is this power that Paul is talking about and calling on? It's resurrection power. It is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so what is it that resurrection power can do for us? I'd like you to think for a minute, if you were uh, working for an ad agency and you were going to have to write copy for uh, a product called Resurrection Power, what would that include? What would you be using it to, to, to get this product across, to make this brand penetrate into the marketplace? What is it that you would say about God's resurrection power? Not a rhetorical question. Shout out. What, what can this resurrection power do in our lives? Energy. Okay, someone's got a handle on this. Someone else has got to know a little bit about what this resurrection power can do. Those are all good. Others, what what can resurrection power do in our lives? Okay, that's better. Let me just rattle off a couple of things to help get you encouraged here for for, for what, what this prayer, I think, can do in your lives. Resurrection power can heal. It can repair, it can restore, it can redeem, it can convict us. Resurrection power can defeat the power of sin in our lives. It can establish peace in our lives. Resurrection power creates hope. It creates opportunity. It builds marriage partnerships that reflect biblical truth. It protects us against temptation. This powerful grace can, well, it can in give us courage, perseverance. Paul says it can give you more than you can imagine. So I need power just to be able to imagine more than I can. He wants to give this to us. And so my encouragement is, is that rather than fall prey to going back and making mud pies or digging in the shed looking for fame and fortune, that you keep before you this this prayer of Paul's, not to read it word for word out of the Bible, but to rewrite it, rewrite it in your own words, based off the truths that are there. Maybe just building on one verse or one word, or sometimes encompassing the whole thing. Build it into your prayer life once a month, once a week, whatever you need to keep your faith vital and strong, to keep grace amazing in your life and powerful in your life. And I'd like to close this morning. It's just a a simple little paraphrase of the prayer that I would pray for you this morning with the encouragement that you take this to heart and use it as part of your regular discipline of spiritual disciplines. Almighty and Sovereign Father, I pray that out of your glorious, manifold riches, you would strengthen us deeply and profoundly with resurrection power so that our faith increases and that Christ is proclaimed and glorified in our lives. I pray that you forgive our disunity and replant your love in us so that we may abide in you 
and with one another in the work of the church. May we, together with all your holy people, be granted the, the, the capacity and the power to grasp the enormity of the love of Christ. That, Lord, you, you would open up our, our hearts and minds to be able to, um, to absorb as much of this knowledge or much of this love that surpasses knowledge. That doesn't mean it's impossible, Lord. We just need to know it better and we need to know more of it. When that happens, Lord, then you are able to stimulate a desire in us, a desire to be filled to the measure of all your fullness. I pray that you would do that work in us each and every day. I pray that we would all avail ourselves to this this wonderful prayer of Paul's meant to encourage to encourage us in every way possible with your amazing, powerful grace. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.